Well, good morning again. <laughs> uh, I want to start by throwing some statistics at you, if I may. Not that, that's, there won't be too much, so don't, don't worry. Um, statistics to kind of give you a sense of, to, of the context the, of the culture in which we, we live today. Uh, so in the year 2000, there were roughly, roughly some 1,200 mosques in the United States. In the last 20 years, that number has more than doubled. Uh, in 1990, uh, stats showed that, well, since, since 1990, sorry, since 1990 and, and, and the years since that time, um, Buddhism, the number of adherents to Buddhism in North America has increased some 170%. Uh, Buddhism is now, maybe you know this, it is actually the fourth largest religion adhered to in the United States. Globally, let's, let's pan way out now, globally, yes, uh, one-third of the world's people identify in some way, shape, or form as Christian. Now, that's a lot of people, right? You know, think in terms of the whole world, one-third, that's a lot of people, but what, who doesn't? Two-thirds, some four billion people in this world do not in any way identify themselves as Christians. So those are your statistics. That's your context. So here's the question, and it has something to do with a charge that sometimes is, is lodged against those who name the name of Jesus. And that is, where did you get off thinking that you have a corner on truth. Who do you think you are to think that you can make such an exclusivist claim as to have the eye, the favor of the one true God? That's pretty narrow, goes the charge. That's pretty arrogant, goes the claim. And into this, into those statistics and that context and that charge and everything, Jesus speaks... And without any bravado whatsoever or any smirk, he says, I am. He says, I am. We're taking a little side road in the midst of this series uh, through the I am statements in John's gospel. We've been doing that over the last several weeks off and on. And uh, what I want to do, if, I, if you'll bear with me, is, is do kind of a follow-up to the one we did just a few weeks ago uh, in John chapter 4. There's so, so the implications of that are so huge. It just seemed like taking one stab at it was not sufficient, and perhaps we needed to kind of take another run at this and, and process it just a, a little bit more if we can. So uh, we're going to be in John chapter 14. It'll be on the screen. Uh, if you've got a Bible, whether it's in print or clicking or whatever it is that you're doing, uh, you're trying to find that. This is the fourth of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, then John. We're in John chapter 14. Uh, this is one of those I am statements that Jesus, well, that is recorded for us in John's Gospel that Jesus makes of himself. Um, at the very least, in every one of these is a claim to deity but every one of these I am statements has a whole freight train of significance behind, in addition to, to that as, as well. So, John 14, 
I'm going to be especially honing in on verse 6, but we do want to read down to verse 7. So John 14, starting at verse 1 through verse 7. Hear now God's word. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and to, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also, that you, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Let's stop for a moment to to pray and ask for the Lord's blessing, his hand uh, upon us in this time. Jesus, would you help us here? Uh, Those of us here who are entirely convinced already of this claim that you are making of yourself, then would you encourage us? Would you deepen the roots of that conviction? Uh, Would you be so gracious as to meet us right there? For those of us here who at one time believed that perhaps, but are struggling with it now and just not quite sure, uh, would you, be again, be so merciful as to uh, tenderly kindly uh, come alongside and, and reassure and remind as to uh, what we knew before uh, that is still the case now. And for those of us here this morning who are really not quite sure of this at all and perhaps never have been and are here this morning checking it out, uh, inquiring, curious, searching, uh, again, we plead for your mercy and, and ask that you would speak to uh, our hearts there, too, our minds there, too, uh, to, to engage with us uh, where we are, where you know where we are. Uh, we thank you for this time. Thank you for the songs that we've been able to sing so far, uh, for the readings that we've been able to do so far that really are already leading us to, to this text and uh, where we're going over the next few minutes. And we thank you just for that uh, and for this morning already, but we pray for this time remaining. Amen. So, let's just not beat around the bush and just call it what it is. This is an exclusivist claim. As I said a few weeks ago, the difficulty that many of us have with Jesus' words here in John 14, the difficulty that we have with this, not that it's hard to understand. The difficulty is that we do understand and it just strikes us as so strong and so radical, especially in our day. He's, he is saying to his disciples here on the eve before his crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension, he is saying, I am going, I am going, and I'm preparing this place for you, but I am the way. I am the way. I am the way to the Father. I'm the only way to the Father. And and so that exclusivist claim, we also have to recognize, is an offensive claim. 
And it has always been an offensive claim. It's not just in our Western postmodern context that we are offended by this. Even when Jesus spoke it, his contemporaries were offended by this. Jew and Gentile, think with me. So if you're a Jewish person there in the crowd and you're hearing Jesus say these words, and for centuries your culture, your religion, all of this has been wrapped up in the sacrifices and everything pertaining to the temple and the priests and the, the holy days and all of that, and he is saying, I'm the fulfillment of it. New day come, new day is dawn. That's done. All this that you have treasured for so long and adhered to for so long, he is saying is over because he has come as the fulfillment of it. This new day has dawned, so the sun has set on that exclusive, offensive claim for the Jew and for the Gentile. So in the Greco-Roman world, we talked about this again a few weeks ago, that in, in that time, in that culture, there were all kinds of different religions, all kinds of different sects, all kinds of different gods that you could worship and views that you could have. And uh, there was no one, no, no one really adhered to any one way. There was not any sort of a, an understanding in the Greco-Roman world that you had to commit to one particular path. It was Maybe you could say more of a, of, like a, of a cafeteria line, sort of like what we're going to be doing here in the, in the fellowship lunch here in a little while, okay? Um, there was no one way. So again, Jesus is saying, I am, I am the way. So again, that's, that's exclusivist, and that's offensive then and now. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, the implication, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can parse this these sentences, however you want. You can't get around what he is saying. You can diagram it. You can do surgery, examine, put it under a microscope. What he's saying here is the obvious interpretation here brings you to, in many ways, an offensive declaration obvious interpretation and an offensive declaration. So what's our response? What is our response to what he is so clearly saying? And perhaps we should also go so far as to, as to ask this question. This is where I want to go over the next few minutes, and that is, how do we respond when we are told and we are accused and we are charged of, in fact, being exclusivist and offensive for bearing this message, for repeating, for, for being Christ followers and saying, well, this is what he said. And so when we are told that we are exclusivist and offensive, how should we, how can we engage with that? Well, to, to get there, what I'd like to do in the next few minutes is to talk about some illustrations. Now, what I mean by that are, are some metaphors, some images that are oftentimes used to engage with this topic. The first, there's three. The first two are two that are used usually to push back against what Jesus is saying in terms of this exclusivist, offensive perspective on who he is as the way, the truth, and the life. So that's the first two images are pushing back against that, and we're going to engage that together a little bit. And the third one is one that might just be of help grappling with to understand, oh, that's what that means. 
That's what that means. Okay, so the first, and we've got, we've got some images here even on the screen just to kind of grapple with us. So the first one is, and many of you have heard this, I'm sure, the blind men and the elephant, right? The, the, the metaphor, the image, the story of the blind men and the elephant, and it usually goes, I mean, there's variations on it, but it usually goes something like this. A group of blind men are going along this path, and they come upon this elephant, right? And each one, each one of the blind men puts his hands up upon the elephant and comes up with a different interpretation of what this critter is, right? So the first blind man, he has his hands on the trunk and he says, oh, this thing is long and slender. It's like a snake. That's what an elephant is. The second blind man says, no, you're nuts. That's not it at all. It is it is thick and it's round as he has his hands around the legs, the trunks. Well, that'd be the legs. The legs of the elephant. The other one says, you're both wrong. Third blind man says, you're both wrong. As he's got his hands up upon the side of the elephant. It's long, it's high, it's hard, it's broad, it's huge, but it's flat. And, you know, other variations get into the, uh, the tusks and the tail and the ears and, and all that kind of thing. The, the idea is simply this. Each one of these men could only take in a part of the whole. They couldn't see the whole elephant. They could handle only a bit of it. That's, that's where this goes. And you can see where that goes as far as the point of the metaphor, of the image, when, it come, when you're talking about the religions of the world. The idea is, behind the story, the idea behind the story is each religion, each worldview, each philosophy can only grapple with, can only handle, only touches on, but a part of a much larger whole. They can't take the whole thing in, and that's what you have. Each one only sees but in part, but not the whole. Okay, what do we do with this? What's right with this? What's wrong with this? How is it helpful? How is it not? That's worth grappling with. It's a very popular image. It's been around a long, long time, actually. So what can we commend? We can commend this. It does grapple with the reality of differences in the different world religions. It does that, and we should grant that much. It does grapple with the fact that there are, in fact, differences and distinctions. And actually, the point, the, the aim of the metaphor of the image is to try and make us more humble as we talk about things, as we engage with one another. And the world could sure use a heck of a lot more of that. A little less pride, a little less arrogance, and a little more humility. Okay, so that's, okay, those are laudable. That's good. Here's some problems, some problems with the metaphor that are worth considering. Tim Keller, in his wonderful book, The Reason for God, which I would highly commend to you, again, points out the purpose. The purpose of this story is to say that every one of the religions can see but in part of the whole picture and not the whole. That's what you have with the elephants, with, uh, with the blind men and the elephant. Um, but here's the problem. How can you know that the blind men can only see but in part of the whole elephant unless you as the one who is saying this, unless you are like an omniscient, all-knowing narrator seeing the whole picture, seeing what the blind men are trying to do, and you can take in the whole elephant. You see, what you're, you're saying by using this argument, by using this metaphor is, you have the ability to see the truth, 
the whole truth. You, unlike the adherents of all these different world religions who can only see but a part, 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 you can take it, but, but, but wait a minute. You're now doing exactly what you just said no one can do. That is to say, see the whole thing. So it's grossly inconsistent. It's a bit short-sighted. The argument collapses in upon itself. One would have to even say, frankly, it's a bit hypocritical for all of its laudable intent. Okay, so blind men and the elephant. Helpful, but not really. So let's go to another illustration, another, another image. This would be the paths up the mountain. Uh, this one's fairly popular as well. It's somewhat similar, but there are some distinctions as well. Whereas the blind man and the elephant, that's more of a static thing. This is more of a journey and a movement. So here's the image. Here's the idea, the argument using this, this perspective. So the idea is you have this mountain, you have a summit, and all these different paths, some are direct, some go straight on up, some are winding, curving, whatever. But in the end... They all get to the same place. They all get to the same summit, right? That's the idea of all the paths going up to the, the, the mountain. And the mistake, by the way, the mistake that you don't want to make as somebody walking on one of these paths is what you don't want to say is kind of sneeringly look to the other guy or other gal on the other path and say, well, you're on the wrong path. I mean, no, 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 because, again, all the paths, right? All the paths go to the same place, None is worse, none is better, because, right, you're all going to get to the summit, right? That, that's the way the, the, the argument goes. Um, now, of course, the, the, uh, the point of this, again, is when you're thinking about the paths, as all the different world religions, all the different philosophies, all the different worldviews in the, in, in the world, every one of them gets you to the same place, to God, to a rich spiritual, satisfying flourishing. That's the idea. And again, that would certainly imply, again, going with the, 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 the metaphor that none are worse, none are better. They're all just as good, just as valid, because they're going to get you to the same place. Okay, so what can we say about this? What can we say is good? What can we commend? What do we need to critique? How do we engage this? Uh, well, how can we commend it? Again, it acknowledges the diversity, the distinctions between the different religions, between the different philosophies and worldviews. It, it, it acknowledges that. And again, like the blind men and the elephant, the idea, the driving motivation behind this, uh, this story, this image, this metaphor, is to encourage humility on our part. And again, okay, that's, that's commendable. Uh, what do we need, to, though, to say in terms of a uh, critique. So J.P. Moreland and Tim Muehlhoff, and there, again, I'd commend this book to you as well, The God Conversation. It's already gone through second, maybe even a third edition. Uh, the God Conversation, J.P. Moreland, Tim Muehlhoff, they, they point out uh, a, a couple of pro significant problems with this image, which, with this metaphor. The first is, they, this completely ignores the, um, or actually even alters, not just ignores, but alters the claims of the founders of these different religions. So, Muhammad, for instance, certainly would not agree with this. He would say, would have said, no, it's Allah 
is the path. Jesus, we already know what Jesus said. We read that for a few minutes. He says, I am, I am the path. There is, there is no other. Um, perhaps the only group, significant group, that would agree with this would be Hindus, because from that perspective, it's just blending in all one reality, and so there's really, you can say as many paths as you want to, but it's really all just one anyway. So, I mean, that would be the only case in which you'd find agreement with, with this. So, it alters the claims. It, it also ignores the contradictions. The, this image, the, the one there on the screen, of the, all the different paths, it, it radically uh, ignores the contradictions that are clear between these different approaches, these different religions, these different philosophies, these different worldviews. For instance, what is our purpose in life? They differ on that. What is the cause of suffering? What is it that separates us from God? For that matter, when you get to the summit, who do you find there? Who do you find there? Buddhism would say no one. Hinduism would say gazillions of gods and goddesses. Islam would say one God, Allah. Judaism would say one God, Yahweh. Christians would say, oh wait, one triune God. So th this image, this metaphor here really does not do us much help uh, in terms of altering the claims, ignoring the contradictions. It's a bit too convenient. To be honest, it's, it's a bit too condescending because when you think about it, what it's saying to billions of people all the world over, the distinctions of your beliefs don't mean anything. Whatever your belief is, it doesn't mean anything. Okay, so let's punt on the mountain. So we're, we're saying the, the blind men, the elephants, that's not going to work. The different paths up the mountain, that's not going to work. Let's go with one more. Maybe this one will help. The maze. So uh, Muloff and Moreland, again, this is uh, from their book, The God Conversation. The idea is, is this. So Hampton Court in London has one of these, and that's what that is, an aerial shot of that there. Uh, these are eight-foot high hedges planted back in 1702, takes up roughly of a third of an acre, uh, about a half a mile worth of paths. Uh, they're actually fairly narrow. I don't know how well you can see that on the screen. The, there are a couple of people in there, uh, but uh, it's really, you can't even hardly see their heads once you're, you're, you're actually in there. Um, the object, of course, with such mazes, I think like corn mazes, right? You know, many of y'all have been in something like that. It's just not as sophisticated, unless it's Elvis, I guess, you know, or Johnny Cash, you cut, cut into shapes like that. But... Um, the object of these things is, is, is fairly obvious, and that is to try and get to the center. But the problem is, which path do you take? Which path is going to get you to the center of the maze? Some paths, you're going to hit a dead end pretty quickly, right off the bat. Other paths might go fairly deep into the maze until you hit that dead end. Others are going to parallel one another for some period of time until you, you hit a dead end with that one, and another one keeps on going. Only one, only one path moving through the maze is going to get you to the center, to the goal, to where it is that you're trying to get to. The point being, the point being, you can see where this is going. Uh, these varying approaches when it comes to world religions, 
and philosophies and worldviews is much like this maze, much more so than the blind men and the elephant, much more so than the different paths going up the mountain. It's much more like the maze. That's the, the idea. Some dead-ending, some paralleling. There only being one in the end that is going to work. So how can, let's, let's engage this for just a minute. Let's, let's talk about how is this helpful. It acknowledges parallels. That would be one. And we, we do need to reckon with that. There are parallels uh, to different world religions, different worldviews. It's, it's worth reckoning with that. For, for instance, um, Hindus and Buddhists boast, bo- excuse me, both adhere to karma and reincarnation. That's parallels in two significant, huge world religions. Here's another parallel. So between uh, Muslims, Jews, and Christians all believe that there's but one God, not many gods, each one, I grant you, the differences in their understanding of who he is, but still it's a monotheistic religion. So the, it's, it's helpful here to acknowledge the parallels before we start with where we disagree, to start with where we can agree. And that's exactly what we see in the Bible. That's exactly what we see modeled for us by the Apostle Paul. As we read as how he engaged with the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17, now, I forgot to give these verses to the AV guys. They're doing a great job with the images, but I blew it here on getting them these verses from Acts 17. But if you want to keep your thumb in John, we can go to Acts chapter 17. That's, only, that's just the next book over to the right uh, from John's gospel. Acts 17, we see Paul's uh, approach here uh, there in the city of Athens. Uh, he's trying to build, he's recognizing, can I put it this way? He's, try, he's recognizing the parallels. He's trying to build bridges of communication. He recognizes, he's starting with what they share, what he shares in common with these people. And that's where he, be, he begins, not with what, uh, where they differ. So chapter 17, verse 22, uh, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And he goes on from there and engages with them and is trying to move the argument, move what he's saying, help them to move along to the point of helping them to see that, look, the, the object of your worship is wrong, but your desire to worship is right. And he's building on that. And he goes even further. He engages with their pop culture. He engages with their social media, with what they've been going to see at the Cineplex. Okay, it's not quite that, but um, with, their, with their poets. Paul is, is well-versed in the literature of, of their culture. You read, skipping down to verse uh, 27, 28. Yet he, that is God, is, not, is actually not far from each one of us, kind of picking up midway in the, in the argument, for, and many of your Bibles probably have some quotation marks at this point, in him we live and move and have our being. That is not from the Old Testament. That's from a, a pagan Gentile author. Move on. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Again, he's quoting from not something from the Old Testament, not certainly not something from the New Testament, not even one of his other letters, he is quoting from the culture of the day to build these 
bridges to try and work with what they share in common, what they agree with. Well, what, about, what would that mean for us? What would that mean uh, f- for us? Well, perhaps we could consider individuals, key individuals in certain world religions that we can commend certain things about them. So let me give you an example. Muhammad, his generosity towards the poor. The Dalai Lama, uh, his um, forgiveness of the Chinese after the slaughter of his people. Gandhi, uh, his standing with the Indians who were persecuted in the caste system. Uh, Buddha and his insight regarding the reality the horrible reality of suffering in this world. Now, do we agree with the conclusions that these folks came? No, we don't. Not as Christians, we don't. But can we not commend some of the initial observations and where they are beginning and some of the commendable things that we can see in their lives as, as human beings? Or even some of the practices, dare I say this, some of the practices that we see in other religions. So, for instance, in Islam. The commitment to pray five times a day. And the focus of the prayer is almost entirely on praise. Could we learn from that, perhaps? Again, I'm not saying, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we worship Allah. That's not the point. But can, are there not bridges? Are there not things in common? Are there not things commendable that we can find because these individuals, our contemporaries and those who uh, preceded us, bear the image of God and are made in His likeness? And so we can find these, these bridges and these, if you will, parallels, the parallels in the maze. If we look hard enough, and sometimes you don't have to look that hard, You can find those. Now, that said, while we do need to acknowledge the parallels, we also have, because this is also part of, very much part of this metaphor, this maze has dead ends. And in love, we have to say that. As far as those parallels may run in that maze, there are dead ends, full stop. There's only one that makes it to the center. Jesus has declared it of Himself because it's who He is, the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. We have to say both. You see? It's not one or the other. It's acknowledging the parallels of the past and the maze, and at the same time, in love, in compassion, with humility, and perhaps even in tears, speak of the dead end. Speak of the dead end. Not all paths are going to make it to the center. So what, how do we, what, what might that look like in some of our conversations? Well, what would be some say uh, the dead ends within well, Buddhism and karma? Buddhism and, and karma. Well, uh, an overly simplified version of that would be to say, just kind of as a summary, would be to say what you experience in this life It's a reaping of what you sowed in a past life. That's the idea, okay? So the suffering that you're experiencing in this life is because of what you did 
before in a life or two prior, okay? Now, the repercussions of that, when you grapple with that in an honest way, can be significant and tragic. What is your incentive, really? What is your incentive, really, when you know you're going to screw it up again? At least I know I will. If that's my worldview, what's my incentive to strive harder, to do better, to, to what, you know, what, however you want to frame that? When I know I'm going to screw it up again, so I'm just going to end up in my next life as a cricket or a, a hummingbird with a broken wing. I don't know. Or a Dallas Cowboys fan. No, sorry. Um, sorry. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. <laughs> Had some fun in Dallas this week, but anyway. Um, I'm sorry, was that, offend- was that the part you're offended by? Really? <laughs> After all this, that's what got you? <laughs> wow. Okay, so the first is the, the, that sense of, you know, personally, that sense of fatalism that's so crippling. But I don't know what, of another term to use because this is like, I, it's going to, like, some of you are going to go into an allergic reaction when I use this. But social activism, like trying to engage or trying to come along people who are suffering, whether in a societal sense or in an individual sense or whatever it is. Okay, if my worldview is that of karma, reincarnation and karma and all that stuff, then this individual, whatever it is that they're suffering, whether it's my neighbor or the person on the other side of the world, they're getting what they deserve, right? In the karma system, the reincarnation, they're getting something that they deserve. So who am I, right? Who am I to interrupt that cycle? Who am I to engage and try and alleviate the suffering of this person if, in fact, this is the cosmic order of things. I mean, maybe I'm messing that up. By try, you can't live with this. You can't, simply cannot live with this. Well, let me take you to one more. Um, not just the Buddhism and the karma thing, but Islam. Islam and the works orientation of salvation there. And some of you may know that the way this works is that, that uh, salvation comes with no assurance, it comes at the end of your life upon which your, your good deeds and your bad deeds over the course of your, your days are going to be judged, and if the good outweighs the bad, then okay, you're in. But if not, so sorry. There's no assurance there. There's no peace there. You can never know. And even if maybe in your own mind you've got a really good track record and you're feeling like if I get hit by the truck today, I'm good, but tomorrow, what if I blow? I probably will. And then just emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, you take this deeply enough into your heart, you're going to go one of two ways. You're going to become either an incredibly proud or arrogant person because you've deceived yourself into thinking you're so good, or you're more honest, but now you're despairing. Where is the hope in this? You can't live like that. And a lot of Christians, that's where they're stuck too because they don't understand grace. That's another sermon. So the parallels with the maze, the parallels are real, but so are the dead ends. There's only one way, and it's Jesus, the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
no one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he is saying. How should we respond to these words? There's a wrong way to respond, and that is to reject it and walk away. There's a right way, and that is to hear him, to bow before him, and to go forth with this message. To hear him, to bow before him, and to go forth with this message. Now, how ought we to go forth with that message? Again, given that he He is the way, the truth, and the life, and not the one bearing the message. How then do we go forth as heralds of such a one as that? With a humble boldness, a quiet courage, because we this is our charge and our privilege. This is uh, something we take and, and, and go forth with humility and conviction and compassion. With this good news upon our hearts, upon our lips, this truth and life that He has drawn us into and is continually drawing us into, this way and life that He has shown and is continually showing us more of, This one who says to us still today, still today, to his followers, to his people, I am going to the Father, and I am how you will get there. And I am the only way that you can. Can we pray together? Lord, thank you. Forever, however, however helpful the story of the blind men and the elephant may be, however helpful the paths going up the mountain may be, we know that at best that's, those are half-truths. The reality is it really is much more like the maze with the parallels and the dead ends and the one way. And we ask that you would help us, even this morning, even at this moment, to pause, to consider these, your words, that you would actually truly, graciously, mercifully put us in the crowd at the moment, hearing these words coming forth from this man standing there before us who is God in the flesh, and that they would land. Wherever we are this morning, wherever we are in our relationship with you this morning, oh, would you cause these words to land? Would you fill our hearts with wonder as we hear you, you say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Would you fill our hearts with wonder? Would you fill our minds with truth? 
Would you fill our wills with a humble resolve? We pray in your name. Amen.